Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I speak with Rita Baghdadi, director of Sirens. Here's what Rita has to say about her film. Sirens is an intimate coming-of-age story that follows the co-founders and guitarists of the Middle East's first all-female metal band as they wrestle with friendship, sexuality, and destruction in their pursuit of becoming thrash metal rock stars. Rita has directed two previous documentary features, My Country No More and City Rising, for which she won an Emmy for Best Social Issue Film. Sirens premiered at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival and has won awards at the Sun Valley Film Festival and the Florida Film Festival. Sirens will be playing at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival Friday, May 13th at 9.45 p.m. and Wednesday, May 18th at 7 p.m. Both showings will be at the Maine. If you can't make it to the showings in the Twin Cities, you can find other screenings at Sirens Documentary. That's one word, sirensdocumentary.com. And now, my discussion with Rita Baghdadi about her film, Sirens. Rita, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the film. It's about a band. It's about life in Lebanon, certainly. But it really is a wonderful exploration of the lives of young people, their loves, their hopes, their disappointments. It's an achievement. Why do you make documentary films? I make documentary films because I don't know what else to do with my life. No, (laughs) I really, I think there's many reasons. I think one is an element of trying to figure out who we are in this crazy world and just connecting with people and uncovering truths and connecting the dots and and having emotional experiences. I feel like documentary filmmaking, it's not a job or a career for me. It's more of a lifestyle or it's like a way of life for me. I live it, eat, sleep it, breathe it. Maybe that's not healthy, but there's no difference between my life and my filmmaking life. But I think that shows in my work because it's all very raw to me. It's all emotional truth to me. The film focuses on two members of a five-person band. Sherry, who's the virtuosic lead guitarist, she, and she really can shred folks, and Lilas, the rhythm guitarist, who struck me at least as the charismatic center of the band. It should be noted that they once were a couple. Is that fair to say? They had an experience together. I don't think they would say they were ever a couple. It's complicated because of their, you know, they're friends and they're in a band together. So we love to talk about openings. I think the opening here is great. It's kind of three panels, if you will. It starts with an intimate interior shot of two young women. We don't know them yet, but they're Lila and Sherry speaking with each other, mainly in Arabic. And then we immediately were outside. We're in exterior, Beirut at night and in a protest with people waving the Lebanese flag shouting revolution. We see inscriptions in English, homophobia is a crime. I think we even see Lilas waving a flag. And then we're back interior. And it's almost like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It's an interior. They're putting on their makeup uh, and putting on these leather clothes of these incredibly aggressive guitars. Uh, And then they're on stage. They're playing very powerful, heavy metal music in front of a a crowd of young men and women who are very excited. And, And like I said, it's almost like the interior scenes, the exterior world, and then the two worlds coming together. Can you talk about what we're trying to accomplish with this opening? Well, I'll say the openings are notoriously the hardest part of a documentary to make. We had maybe 30 other openings before this one and very different ones. I had an opening with like archival footage of the band a long time ago. I had openings, like all kinds of things. 
I think the challenge with this film, like you said, is sort of this trifecta of complexities that you have to introduce an audience to where you have to assume an audience doesn't know Lebanon, doesn't know this band. Nobody knows Lebanon, nobody knows this band. Like you just have to assume these things. I wanted to introduce the girls, our main characters, quote unquote, in an intimate way because I wanted to set the audience up for an intimate journey that was about to come. And you know, that's another challenge with making openings is you have to establish the language of the film from frame one or else your audience will turn on you. You know, if they think you're setting them up for a different movie, it, it can be bad, maybe you'll lose them. So I wanted it to be intimate. I wanted to introduce the two main characters. I wanted to introduce the backdrop, the political context and the cultural context that we were in at the time, which was the height of the revolution. And I wanted to introduce the band and the music aspect. And somehow we came up with this opening at the 11th hour before Sundance that I think is just amazing. I, also, I only say that after 30 failed attempts. She said you talk about the politics a little bleakly and you don't dig into it. I'm not going to force you to dig into it too deeply here today. But let me ask you a question about, I think, a scene near the end that echoes this initial scene. And by the way, folks, obviously I'm going out of order. This is a movie which I think is traditionally linearly structured in a very meaningful way. Towards the end, we see a scene where Lilas and Sherry, after they've had sort of a falling out, are reconciling a bit. They're talking about a hot party that Lilas went to there down the street it's an amazing scene. It's one of the best scenes I've seen in recent years, by the way. And suddenly we, in the background, we see a man, a man in fatigues appear. And huh, that's interesting. And then you shift the angle a bit and we see another man in fatigues getting out of a car. And then suddenly there's a protest there. And it really, again, it's a similar scene, right? Where it's an intimate scene that suddenly becomes political and external. It's also my favorite scene. Well, it's one of my favorite scenes. I have many babies. This scene just happened. I really can't take credit for it. I think that the skill in the moment for me is just to be witnessing something and just to let it play out and not try to force too many like cutaways or, you know, just try to do too much. And so that really was like a one take shot. I think it was like a 25 minute shot or something. And so we do have to cut in at some point because we couldn't just let 25 minutes play out. I'm always striving to do, I want to make a one take documentary one day. Other than that, I can't really take credit for the scene at all. It just happened that way. But when it happened, and I later watched the footage, a lot of people asked me, how do you know you're done shooting? And that was one of the scenes where I was like, okay, everything has come full circle. Like the themes in this film have all sort of touched each other's come back around. And it felt really meaningful in that regard. And I knew that it had to come towards the end of the film. And there was also this sort of change in Lila. She cut her hair off and she was more confident and she was more comfortable in her skin and talking about these things. And then with Sherry, you can sense a little bit of like, maybe jealousy or maybe not. Maybe it's a renewed interest in supporting her individualism and going out into the world and exploring other people. And so I thought that all those things really really touched me. And I'm just so happy that everyone else is feeling that too when they watch it. Yeah, it's a great scene. And it reminds us of their origins, right? Because I believe Sherry tells us that they met at a protest. Can you tell us a little bit, what were they protesting? So the original protest was actually about the garbage crisis. In 2015, yeah, Lebanon had, I think it was a strike, a worker strike, and the garbage had just been left out on the streets for, I think it was like a matter of weeks. The whole 
country, Beirut specifically, had become sort of riddled with garbage and people got so fed up. But it was a metaphor for a larger systemic issue that, that they had been going through in the country, one of corruption and just general mishandling of the country's resources. And the people felt completely abandoned by their government and completely screwed over by their government. There was a lot of youth that came out during those protests as was later, fast forward four years to the revolution, to 2019, the revolution in Lebanon started because of the WhatsApp tax that they wanted to impose. And the country said no, because they were so far in debt. And that was the government, one of their solutions was to have the citizens paying a tax for their WhatsApp. And I think that was just a straw that broke the camel's back. I read one of the things that you sought to do with this documentary was to correct some of the suppositions that maybe, say, an American audience has about young women in Lebanon. What's the number one misimpression that you think that we might have that you believe that this documentary might help us rethink? I grew up in more or less in America after 9-11 happened. I mean, I was a young teenager when it happened. And so the images that I sort of came of age with of Arab people from the Middle East, like my family's from Morocco, so like the MENA region, Middle East, North Africa, mostly, let's say, quote unquote, Muslim countries. But Arab people in general, I think on screen were portrayed as just all the stereotypes were negative. It's dangerous there. The women are just oppressed. All the stories are only about like either women serving their husbands or being beaten by their uncles or like whatever it is. And a lot of the stories in America were centered around like freedom for women was like, oh, I'm going to take off my hijab. And I'm like, that's not, (laughs) that's not the issue here. Like women have a choice whether they want to wear it and they can take it off or not. But let's get to more facets of these cultures. Let's get to more facets of individuals, people that are living in the region. And also all of the films are always about trauma and war and terrorism. And yes, those things exist. They exist in our country too. And they exist in a lot of white countries and European countries. And so I just wanted to get past that and just show another side to life. There are people just living their lives. There are universal stories to be found. There are young women expressing themselves in ways that I think American audiences were like, oh, wow, I didn't know they were allowed to do that. Or I didn't know they, you know, they did that. And they're human. (laughs) And so I think that it really just all boils down to like humanizing. I feel privileged to be able to witness this story and show a larger audience that there are many, many, many more facets to life in the Middle East and and that you should check them out. (laughs) Let me ask you, and I'll based upon something that happens in the film, but about the experience of LGBTQ people in Lebanon. Before we go too far, let's not pat ourselves too hard in the back in the US. After decades of the improvements of the lives of LGBTQ people, we're seeing a backlash, a pretty powerful backlash. In the film, there's one scene in which in the background is Lila's and her mom, I think, are maybe making dinner. We hear about a law 534, I think which would make non-natural, quote unquote, sexual acts punishable by up to a year in prison. So it's an interesting scene. It's a very layered scene because maybe Lilas isn't completely out to her mom. What is the current status for people? Are things getting better? Are they getting worse? So things are more or less, I think, the same in a cultural sense. And this goes for, I think, a lot of countries and not just in the Middle East. There's plenty of countries all over the world, like you said, even in America, where 
it, it really depends on your family status. It really depends on your relationship with your family members, what their political leanings are, what their religious leanings are. So it's not necessarily like the government or the army or whatever big force is going to come and like take you away. That's not the immediate risk. The immediate risk is usually within your own family unit and how open are they to other lifestyles and you're being able to express yourself in those ways. But I felt the need to establish a bit of context for an unknowing audience about where you stand if you are LGBT in the country, because a lot of people ask, so what is actually the law? And so the law is very vague and that's how you kind of get around, you know, there's other countries where it's like absolutely illegal. In Lebanon, it's a little bit more vague. It's like you can interpret what it means in many ways, but yet there have been lots of punishments, people going to jail. And in, I think it was 2018, there was a ruling that they decided that it was no longer punishable by law or by one year in prison. I need to read up on the latest, but that's essentially where people stand is it's yes the law changed my, my whole point is that it really still depends on your family unit the immediate threats are always with your closest people not necessarily like the government or the army coming to get you i wonder if you at all felt and tell me if this is totally off base felt some kinship with the young woman here some feel that the documentary world can be very male-oriented world, not overly friendly to women of color. Do you feel any of that? And did you feel that you're exploring any of that in this film? I have always, I feel, been welcomed and had a lot of allies in the documentary community. I think documentary, let's say, when compared to the fiction filmmaking space, is a lot more welcoming and open to women and women of color. However, historically, it's been harder to get financing for stories about people of color, stories about women. And that's also still true in the fiction space. I think things are getting better in that regard, because I think audiences are hungry for these stories and they're demanding it. Me personally, I haven't felt excluded, let's say. But this story was a challenge to make because it's a foreign doc about metal, about LGBT. It's like, it's considered niche on every possible level, regardless of how universal it is, regardless of how amazing the story is on a human level and regardless of the amazing reviews and the amazing team we have, it's still considered niche. And that's a barrier. That's always a barrier. <laughs> read somewhere that one of your early influences, and it's atypical, I think, for documentary filmmakers, is John Waters. And, and I, I don't necessarily see his style at play in this film, but I do think as someone very early on was trying to give voice to marginalized people, especially people marginalized due to their gender or sexual identities, should I see that at work at the ethos of this film? Yeah, I don't know that I would credit that film influencing this film at all. But the reason I mention it in interviews is because everyone asks, like, how did you get into filmmaking? That was one of the seminal sort of moments before I decided to go to film school was meeting him at the Maryland Film Festival. I'm from Maryland. And just discovering his work after that and being like, oh, wow, there's a whole world of cinema that I didn't even know existed, you know? It was like a little bit of an eye-opening moment. He's a character and his characters are characters. It really stayed with me. So I don't know that I've really borrowed from his style at all or, or been influenced in that physical way. 
but it was a early moment for me on my path to filmmaking. So I credit him for that. I think for this film, I'm a big fan of Celine Sciamma. So like Girlhood was an influence for me. I, I then hired Para One, who was her composer, who did the music for Girlhood. And I just had the most amazing experience working with him. I'm very lucky to do so. And films like, there's a documentary called All These Sleepless Nights that I really loved. Because again, it could have been about all the bad things that Poland had experienced and how this new generation da, 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 could have been more political or more this or that. But in the end, he just focused on these two friends and their coming of age moments, raving and, and dealing with relationships. So that was an influence for me. When you see a film like this, you can't help but think of other banned documentaries from the decline of Western civilization to some kind of monster to Peter Jackson's latest work with Beatles. But I think in many ways, you're both drawing on this legacy and rejecting it. So let me give you one example. The young man, I think of the wise young man who's with them, tells them sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that's a myth. And he very endearingly tells them, don't drink, you'll get dehydrated. <laughs> um, how were you thinking about, how do they think about their relationship to all the kind of tropes of heavy metal music? one way let's say the band is very inspired by influence let's say by all the classic mostly male metal bands that have existed you know Lilas is always wearing a Slayer shirt most of their influences are the kind of old guard male metal bands they were all black and they dye their hair and they have tattoos and they wear the boots and the leather so in this way they're fitting into that stereotype but in their own way because they are women and they are Arab and they are coming from different religious backgrounds and they are of different sexualities. But yet for me as a filmmaker, that's exactly what I was trying to do is I was trying to turn the genre on its head a little bit. I knew I didn't want to make a classic band rock doc because I've seen that before. It's been done and I just wasn't that interested in making that film. I think for a different circumstance, I'd love to make a rock doc. But for this one, I knew I wanted it to be a coming of age story. I wanted it to be more about the internal, personal, intimate, because that to me was gonna be how we were gonna get the universal versus like the band journey was always gonna be there. You're gonna have that innately in the story, but I didn't wanna just, yeah, follow in the footsteps of all the other band documentaries, which is why I love those scenes. That's one of my favorite lines in the film. <laughs> Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is a myth because it is. I mean, people die and it's just, <laughs> it's something that it looks sexy on paper or on screen, but for your own life, it's not a great way to live. Who's, who's this young man that, who's around? What's his relationship to the band? Basim is in, he's kind of the old guard metal community in Lebanon the original Lebanese metal band called Black Yum. And he's the founder and singer and guitarist. And he's a super talented musician. And he was a mentor to Lilas and Sherry. And so he kind of taught Lilas how to play guitar. He helped teach her how to play guitar. Sherry and him were dating at one point. So he's kind of a mentor and a friend. And just like he is the metal, you know, like the metal community is very small in Lebanon. So he's part of it. There's this moment where you were talking about kind of puncturing some of the suppositions we have. And he has this moment where he says, one of the problems with being part of an all-female heavy metal band is you lack reserves. And Sherry's immediately like, huh? And I think we're, it's for us, we're like, wait a minute, where's this going? Emotional reserves? What are you talking about? He says, when you're in a male heavy metal band, when you fight with your guitarist, you just find another one. <laughs> and it really does point out that they are their world. They are this group. It's so tight and so confined in some ways. Is there something about this sort of 
insular world that makes it even more of a struggle. Yeah, that's the reason I included that line. I love that line because it really explains how much they need each other, how much they do rely on each other and how special it is that they all found each other and that they have this together because there isn't just another amazing guitarist. There's plenty of good musicians in Lebanon, but like ones that are into this style of music. The fact that they all found each other is a miracle, I think. The trajectory of this film is not the traditional kind of hero's journey trajectory. So, so for example, there's an early scene. It's quite early that they go to the Glassberry Festival and they're very excited about it. But of course, they're not on the main stage. It seems to be early in the day. And so their audience is relatively sparse. And Leela just, just is very not happy with this, I think. In a traditional documentary, I think a lot of like kind of traditional stories, that would be something we'd lead up to and that'd be a big event or they would have run into this problem and then they'd spend the rest of the film overcoming it. You don't do that. And your final scenes are... Two people entering a dark cave. I'll say that we entertained the idea of a traditional three-act structure. I mean, it is a three-act structure film, but we entertained the idea of, like you said, building up to this big performance. We cut that version just for fun, just to see how it'd feel. We knew immediately, we're like, this is not the film we're making. This is not that interesting. And then it became a lot of playing around with where Glastonbury goes. I always knew it should go in act one, but whether it was like, is it the middle of act one? And then you come home and then there's some sort of turn at the end of act one. Is it the end of act one? So there was a lot of playing around with it in the edit, but ultimately I wanted same thing. I wanted to pull the rug out from underneath the audience by the end of act one and say, this is not a traditional band movie. Like here's the scene you wanted. And guess what? Real life, it doesn't go the way that like it does in the movies. (laughs) And instead of the hero's journey, I think your focus, as you noted, is on some of the emotional dynamics, especially the fraught and freighted relationship between Lilas and Sherry. There's a a lot of ways to talk about this. Let me ask you about a particular scene that I found very affecting, but also extremely interesting. The entire band meets to hash things out after Sherry has left. Again, echoes of George Harrison, you know, leaving the Beatles. She comes back and they have a meeting with the whole band. It's not like all those other, like some kind of monster. They really want to talk about their feelings. They really are very good at this. I know that sounds trite, but it's true. Sherry really wants Leela's to admit that they were together at one time. And Sherry is so insistent on this. And Leela's is so stubborn and refusing to, to admit it. Why is that so important to both of them? I think that when I was shooting that scene, and that scene was a very long scene, so I'm truncating it by a lot. We were there all night. What you're seeing is a very short amount of what they talked about, and I limited it to their discussion. The back and forth between Lilith and Sherry, because it was most relevant for the story I was telling, but they did go through a lot of their issues together as a band. I think that for Sherry being acknowledged is just you know, she just wanted some acknowledgement. She wanted to be acknowledged a talent that was needed in the band. She wanted to be acknowledged as like a friend that you can't just throw away. She wanted to be acknowledged as like someone that Lila's had been attracted to, quote unquote, at one point in time. And I think for Lila's, you know, she wants to keep a business. She's not comfortable explaining her feelings in front of everyone. At that point, she wasn't comfortable with admitting whatever moment that they had together, if it meant anything to her, she wasn't comfortable admitting that. She was a little bit stubborn in that, like, if you're going to leave, fine, I don't want to be in this band either. You know, it's like a one-up situation. So I think for them to be able to 
just air out their feelings in front of everyone was like scary, but it was also something they both needed to do. Let me ask a question that seems like an abrupt turn, but actually I think it's related. I want to ask about the title of the film, Sirens, which obviously is a shortened version of their name of the band. Uh, But also it has such resonances, obviously in Beirut, where you have a lot of trauma going on and you have sirens going off. And also, of course, Beirut is a Mediterranean country. It's an Arab country. It's also a Mediterranean country. The myth of the siren is very important. Did you intend any of these resonances or do you care if I point them out? (laughs) No, a hundred percent. You're hitting the nail on the head. It sounds obvious, but I think when you really break down again, there's this trifecta. I think there's like this holy trinity all over the movie of these like these three things swirling all the time around everything and maybe that make confusing for people or like it's too many things too many themes but for me i love layers i love complexity i don't want anything to be black and white i love nuance so with the film name yeah immediately what it brings to mind is like ah slave to sirens it's their band it's just a shorter punchier version of it but it's the mythology of the sea creature and and that's really how they got their band name and so that's relevant to them and then yeah just the sirens we actually hid the sound of sirens in some of the music cues and in some of the sound design throughout the film so it's a little subliminal but it's it's also happening in real life like you hear it just in the diegetic sound i actually had another idea for a title for this film which is a song that Sherry's actually writing throughout the film. It's called Mistress of Pain. And I love that title. It's so metal. It's so cool. I wish we could have used it. But in the end, this one spoke to all the themes in a more direct way. And I think titles need to be a little bit direct these days. There's a lot of layers going on here. You can enjoy it on one level, but there are an incredible number of layers. So let me ask you about one of those layers. One of the things I love about watching a quote, quote, international film, and I say this is an American, so a non-American film, is language. And I was fascinated by the language here. When the young people are speaking to each other, they're often saying a sentence or two in English and then a sentence or two in Arabic and sometimes sprinkling in other terms. When they speak to their parents, I expect it all to be all Arabic. But in fact, the the ratio moves towards Arabic, but they're always throwing in English language terms and a little soupçon of French too, which I expected more French because I think of the French as being one of the languages of Lebanon. Was that true to life? Were they overdoing it because it was on film or was that how people talk? No, I encouraged them from day one. I said, speak in Arabic or speak the way that you would speak when I'm not here. Just do whatever you do normally. And this is how they speak. I think the younger generation, they grew up on the internet. English is just, it's just globally available on the internet and just watching movies and listening to their favorite bands. They're all English singing bands. And then like Sherry, for example, she went to an English school. So you're either Arabic educated, French educated, or English educated in Lebanon because they have so many different facets to their culture. So she was English educated. Lilas was Arabic educated, but Lilas is just... Well, they're all very smart, but she's just picked it up so well. And so that's just how they do it. That's just how they communicate. And I think if you go to any country and you talk to the youth, that's how they speak. These days, it's just you just half, half, or maybe three languages all in one. One of the ones that really struck me is when Sherry's speaking to, I think it's her father, and he refers to the area they live in as the Middle East, in English, the Middle East. So let me continue on that just a little bit. One of the scenes that really blew me away here was there's a big concert in a ruin, I assume a Roman ruin. It's a full orchestra 
And then Sherry and Lilis are on stage with a rock band behind. And what they choose to play is Zeppelin's Cashmere. Now, so let's paint the picture again, which is orchestra rock band playing a song by a British band, a great one in my opinion, but one that many would say exoticizes the non-Western world and culturally appropriates Indian music. It's being played on TV for Lebanon. And, and the announcer says, because we can't express ourselves in other ways that maybe music can do it. Yeah, again, I can't take credit for any of that. What happened is the, the composer for the Lebanese Philharmonic Orchestra, his son, I believe, is the drummer up on stage there. He was also about the same age or maybe younger than the girls. He knew the girls, and I guess he, Harut Fazan, the composer, the maestro, he wanted some guitar players. And so that's how Lilas and Sherry got involved. And I think the theme for that night, it was at the height of COVID, and so they couldn't do what they normally do for this Baalbek concert. It's like this huge festival every year that they throw. Everyone was sitting at home, and so they decided to televise it. Again, I'm showing a very small portion of that night. I'm, and they, they played more than one song together with Lilas and Cherry, but I chose um, that one because it was the most powerfully performed. There was like plays and there was all kinds of music, lots of Oriental music. But the maestro really wanted to merge a few genres and kind of mix it up a little bit. So I just thought that was such a cool scene. And again, I, I kept it a little bit short because A, it's towards the end of the film and you need to start wrapping up the themes. But I didn't want to make it about this concert. Again, to me, it's not about like the shows that they're playing. Yes, we're going to build you up to this moment where it's like these girls are going to go on to play amazing shows. That's not the point here. Of course they are. You can see how talented they are. To me, again, it was more about their personal journeys. Probably two thirds of the way through, there was a very large explosion on the waterfront in Beirut in August of 2020. We believe this was an accident. It was not an intentional, deliberate attempt to cause chaos. So let me start with amazing footage you have. We see the explosion happening and then, well, it's devastating. I had never seen that footage before. Me and my editor, we really struggled with this decision for months about whether we were going to include the explosion because I, again, was actively trying to avoid making a film about all the bad things happening in the Middle East, all the bad things happening in Lebanon. I didn't want to make it about trauma and violence and just showing all these horrible images. And yet I saw such a change, such a dramatic shift in my contributors, Lilas in particular, because I was closest with her. The, the sort of point of no return that they experienced emotionally. To me, I felt a responsibility to put that in the film because it was a coming of age story. And you talk about this moment where you have to grow up and that was the moment for her. All these other things started to feel a little bit petty at that point because it's like, oh, this is the stuff that my mom went through. Like her mom lived through the civil war and was hiding from bombs for literally years of her life. And when Lila's experiences, I still have the voice note she sent me like right as it happened. It is haunting, like absolutely haunting. The fear, the like bone shattering fear that she felt. I struggled with including it because I didn't want to sensationalize it. So that's the reason we included it in the end. And so then we had this struggle to find the right 
depiction of it. Like I wasn't there shooting it and there's no other like news footage in the film. And so how was I going to depict it? Well, my editor actually found, Grace Zara, our editor found this clip and it's the one clip where it actually looks like I could have been filming it because it's more in my style of, of cinematography. And it's this guy from Hungary who was there filming it on his phone and thank God, you know, he's still alive. He's okay. And he's now licensing the, his footage. I feel like it's the only clip that I've seen that, that fit with the film. I'm glad he is well. Uh, you would not have known that from the clip. One of the themes of the film, and it comes up again and again in subtle ways, is the future. So there's little hints of this. Lilis teaches music to young children, and one of the boys comes in and says, it's my eighth birthday. And she says, I hope you live to 100. Uh, yeah. So just there are a number of these little hints. And, and people talk about, is there a future in Lebanon? We wonder if some of them might be looking to leave. Of course, that'd be very difficult. Towards the end, you have some scenes that really explore this. One is there's an abandoned building. Lila sits and she watches Sherry kind of climb up this ladder. And she both encourages, she encourages cautiously, let's say, Lila. And it's hard not to read this as climbing and the future and reaching for goals. Yeah, exactly. Again, very metaphorical, very literal in that metaphor in some ways, but also very nuanced in the sort of push-pull of A, their relationship together, but B, how torn and how caught these young women are, and really this entire generation in Lebanon. The push-pull and being caught between, do I try to make a life here? You know, I don't want to leave. My family's here. This is my country. This is where I grew up. I love this country. We have a good thing going with our band, like all these things, but yet being encouraged by your own family to leave. The fact that there are no opportunities. There's a whole world out there that you haven't explored, but it's scary to go off on your own and do this, but also the barriers, like you said, they just can't just pick up and move to London or, you know, New York city. There's so many barriers holding the Lebanese passport. And so feeling all these things, like you feel like you have this future ahead of you. You're only in your twenties. You, know, you feel invincible in one way. And yet you have like literally impossible dreams that you're reaching for. I get emotional just talking about it. I just think that there's so many people out there that are feeling this, especially with this just mass migration we're dealing with and refugee crisis. People are just trying to figure out like where to live and where to build a life. I mean, humans just need some sense of stability and yeah, so all those things, I think, really come out. Hopefully, it'll lead you to that when you watch that scene. Yeah, and I thought a sister scene of that was shortly thereafter, we see them at a photo shoot at an old hotel by the sea. We hear that the hotel was probably shut down during the war, I assume, the, during the war, during the 70s and 80s in Lebanon. And Lelis and Sherry start dreaming about what could it be, you know, underground clubs, casino, tennis court, pool, and then at a church with gay marriage. They're talking about Lebanon, right? They're talking about what Lebanon could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, I think there's this very, it's such a natural to be 20 and have big hopes and dreams and, and big ideas and to be just very limited by the inner workings of the country you're in and to no fault of, of yours or really most of the citizens it's a beautiful country with so much talent so many educated people and yet there's just the lack of leadership and just the bureaucracy to get something off the ground like that would just be near impossible and just lack of money and job opportunities these are their hopes and dreams and yet as an audience your heart sinks because you're like 
then never, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and yet you really want them to achieve that. I'm old enough to remember a lot of false dawns for Lebanon, like, oh, it's turning around again and again. Yeah. Do you keep up with the band and how are they doing? Yeah, I pretty much talk to at least one of them every day. They're doing well. They're putting the finishing touches on their full-length album, which is super exciting. It's going to be so good. They've been taking their time with it and making it amazing. So that'll be coming out hopefully this summer or fall. And looking forward to touring a bit, I think. Again, the barriers are there with visa situation they were supposed to join me at cph docs in copenhagen and they the danish government denied their visas so for unknown reasons the reason they cited was that there was no justification for the purpose of their trip and i'm like we have an invitation for the festival they're only going to be there for three days anyway lots of barriers but the girls are doing as well as they can the situation in lebanon remains the same there's very little electricity so Lilas is often just in the dark in her room without Wi-Fi and just really struggling. I want to say thank you. And I would encourage anyone to watch this film. You don't have to be a fan of heavy metal. You will learn something about Lebanon. I think if you have young people in your lives and you want to understand them, you understand how they think about their relationships, how they think about love in this world of WhatsApp, how they deal with the inevitable disappointments of life. This is an amazing film. Thank you so much. I think you, you really get the film, so I really appreciate it. Your questions are awesome, and it's really nice to be able to break down the themes. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you've seen in the past or more recently that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? It's debatable whether this is a documentary, but there's a film called Fraud that Dean Fleischerkamp made that I absolutely love and think it's a feat of storytelling. So everyone should check that out.